Welcome to Connected with Emily Obey. I'm your host. This is a podcast dedicated to having conversations that matter to help us feel connected to ourselves, to each other, and to the world we live in. You'll most likely never find me on a volleyball court because I was once kicked out of a grade nine gym class for being so bad at it, the teacher thought I was fully messing with him. You will, however, find me writing books, coaching people on how to have a successful online business through effective content marketing and copywriting, and helping people heal from adversity to live lives that truly feel good and make an impact in our society. Stick around, because I ask the questions we're all wanting to know the answers to. Hi, and welcome back to Connected with Emily Obey. Today on the podcast, I have my amazing friend, and at one point, she was my mentor and my coach. Her name is Nen, and she has probably one of the most incredible triumphant stories I've ever heard. I know that she was always, always my idol when I was going through some tough times. I was always thinking, if she can get through it, I can get through it. And honestly, that carried me through a lot of difficult times. So Iman, thank you for being on the podcast. Welcome. How are you doing? Oh my goodness. Thank you, Emily. That was the nicest thing ever. Thank you. What an amazingly heartfelt welcome. So I'm honored that you're asking me to be here. Yeah. Um, I felt like I had to have you on the podcast just simply because you're such a big part of my life and of my journey. And you know, when you've been through a lot, I don't know, this is an interesting thing. We'll get into the first question first, but I feel like when you've been through a lot in your life um, and you become some kind of inspirational figure, which happened to me, whether it was on purpose or not on purpose, that's what kind of started to occur, especially in the anxiety world um, for me. So people would often look at, look at me for a source of inspiration, look at me for a source of advice, look at me for some kind of like it's gonna be okay type of a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I didn't have that because I was that person. So I was like, who else, you know, on the planet could serve as an inspiration for me, right? (laughs) When I found you, I would like literally watch your talks. I remember you sent me a talk. Um, Mm -hmm. And (laughs) it was, I think he went to school or something, but it was a YouTube link. And I remember watching it over and over and over again. Hmm. I just needed that inspiration. I needed someone who had been through the path that I had been through um, and, and someone who would be able to, I don't know, inspire me and guide me because I felt like I had so much of that pressure from other people. So yeah, thank you for existing. That's why you're no. so much to me. <laughs> thank you. My gosh, I remember that talk. You know, that was my first public talk, and I sent that to you, and it was very special. Yeah, it was amazing. So for the, for the purpose of um, the podcast, the first question I ask everybody is, because it's called Connected, when was the last time you felt really connected to something, someone, yourself, in a way that moved you? Oh my gosh, girl, this morning. Yes. (laughs) Like right now. Um, You know, I am a, I've been a mom for a year. So my baby girl just turned one and on the eighth. And so every morning I wake up with just like a really connected feeling. I love my, 
husband and my dog and I have a baby in my bed and it's just this most beautiful way to start the day and she just brings such a joy and connected feeling to my heart that I, I've never felt before. Mm, that's beautiful. So you are a phenomenal woman, as I've already mentioned a few times. <laughs> my God, this is amazing. I'm like, this is quite a connected feeling. I feel yes. really in love with you yes. right now. <laughs> with me, if you ever feel love, I will praise you till the end of that. Um, but for real, you have a very interesting story. So the first, let's kind of explain how we know each other. So you actually came to me for a reading. I think it was in 2014, correct? Yes. Okay, so I didn't know you. Um, you found me through some kind. I think you found me through Spirit Junkie. And well, we, right, we went to New York. Yes. And I didn't meet you in person there, but I knew, I think, through the Facebook group or something that I had obviously gotten to know a little bit about you with our group. Yeah, yeah, so cool. So then you came to me for a reading, and you did your reading, and I think you shared bits and pieces of your story with me at that point. And mm -hmm. I remember like walking away from that reading being like, this person is incredible. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, I just knew, and I saw so much of the visions for you that they were just going to be amazing. Right. So what really I feel like connected me to you even deeper is when you sent me an advanced copy of your book and I read it mm -hmm. sitting on the floor on an iPad, <laughs> and, like basically all in one shot and I remember I had to take a little bit of a break mm -hmm. reading the book because I had to just go get food and like be a human <laughs> and it was like so hard it was like one of those books it's like you really don't want to split from them um so it yeah the book was just amazing so can you tell us mm -hmm. a little bit about you a little bit about your story and a little bit about the book as well I know that they all kind of tie in together Sure. So meeting you, it was really amazing because that time in my life in 2014 was actually when I was just on the verge of, you know, living really boldly and out loud and being honest about who I am and my story because I had never really shared it publicly before that. And so I kind of, you know, as life always gives you what you sort of leads you and guides you along the way and makes sense after the fact I was led to have a reading with you because I just had all of this brewing inside of me that I wanted to write a book and I wanted to speak on stage and I wanted to share because I kept getting this intense feeling that if I shared like my story that I would be able to help other people and I think you know I'm like every other person on the planet. I just want to know what I'm here for. <laughs> I think we've all asked ourselves that. I know for me a million times, like, what am I here for? Why would I live this crazy life? And so um, I knew that I had to spit it out, right? So for anyone who doesn't know me, I was, I'm Canadian. I was born and raised in Alberta, Canada, and my family comes from Tunisia, North Africa, and they immigrated here, you know, for opportunity and for a different life, you know, Obviously, coming from a third world country, uh, they wanted a, a different experience for their kids. So by the time they get here, they have me in the, like the coldest place <laughs> ever <laughs> from the desert to like the prairies. And um, they were very traditional people, super religious, very, uh, you know, Muslim family. And so our house was 
just old fashioned in, in regards to, you know, being in this new country. Right. And so my father worked away a lot. He was a chef and my mother was a stay at home mom who was just like the most doting, caring, loving domestic person in the world. And they had a tumultuous, abusive relationship. He was very, very abusive. And so ultimately uh, when I was six years old, he they had separated and he came back into our home in the middle of the night while I slept with my mother in their bed and he stabbed her to death in front of me. And so I was orphaned instantly. He went to prison. Um, unfortunately she passed. She, I mean, my whole world was just didn't exist anymore. It felt like this crazy explosion of, I mean, innocence and safety and love and all of the beautiful things that uh, any parent intentionally tries to cultivate for their family and I know um, my family was no different even though something ultimately was crazy about uh, my family but I know my parents really did love my brothers and I and um, obviously tried to do all the things that every other parent I, I think is, is trying to do but um, unfortunately my, my family succumbed to domestic violence and my mom's demise. So I was orphaned and, and my brothers and I just sort of got split up and it was so chaotic, so chaotic. And, um, I spent the next, you know, from six to 18, just sort of floating around from home to home and in and out of different people's homes and like all of these mental issues, obviously having suffered from complex post-traumatic stress disorder. So a huge anxiety disorder that I didn't even know was in existence like I'd never heard of the word you know the words and I didn't know uh, any of the help that was out there so I'm living this whole adolescence like feeling like a crazy person having to navigate my emotions and this new world without my family and it was just really really the most painful and difficult thing that I could ever imagine experiencing um yeah and so I, you know, get spit out at 18 and I'm just like, what do, why, why did all of this happen to me? And what am I supposed to do with it? Yeah. I think anyone who kind of recovering from trauma, like, how do you recover from that? And I didn't know what I was supposed to do now. Like I was 18 and I'm like, so now that was a wild ride. Like, what do I do now? And so I spent the most part of my twenties then having to heal those things because I just wanted to live happily. And I felt like I was starting at like minus a million compared to everyone else. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. And the story that you just shared is in the book. Um, and if you've not read the book yet, people, and you're listening, you should definitely pick up a copy like ASAP. Um, so Iman, that experience of a childhood is, is probably one of the worst things that you could imagine for any child. Would you agree? I mean, yes, because yeah. I, I just think it's hor horrifying to not have your parents. Yeah. And then horrifying to have one of them kill the other one. And, and I just, my heart, like now as a mom, my heart wrenches even harder that the idea of like my baby girl wouldn't have us would like that would, I mean, I think that's your worst nightmare. Right. I think behind is exactly how I felt. I felt there. It was very obvious to me that I was like really behind. It felt like everyone, you know, 
most of the people that I went to school with and things like that were, you know, everyone has their problems and no one's childhood is perfect, but I felt like, you know, that I just didn't have the skills. Um, it wasn't more, it wasn't really like a jealousy thing so much as like, I just felt left out and didn't have skills. Like I was like, but I don't know how to process my feelings and I don't know why I always feel angry and enraged and I don't know why I always have nightmares and I don't know if everyone else is living this way, but it's really hard to go to school when you are not fed and you don't have food because you're the family that is letting you live with them is abusive and they're suffering from their own mental illness and they're alcoholics and drug addicts. And I don't know if anyone else had to hang out with hookers and crackheads last night, but I'm in grade seven and I'm really hungry and I can't like concentrate on this test right now because I'm scared I'm going to get beaten tonight. So like, I just don't think anyone else was like maybe immediately thinking of all of these things. They were probably like having regular adolescent problems. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So I felt like an alien my entire life. That's so interesting. And yeah, I'm glad that you you said, yeah, totally, that, that this is how I felt. I feel like um, obviously we can all have different degrees of trauma based on mm-hmm. traumas that have happened in our life or the chronic stressors that are occurring. Um, but I think that's a universal thing for people who um, had to experience PTSD or who've had a history of trauma. It's this feeling of like, I am not like everyone else in some way because Mm -hmm. I can't cope the same way everybody else seems to cope right that's a beautiful way to say it the coping it's like I get that we all have different problems and I'm sure you are mad at your mom and dad or you know siblings and you have like issues of your own and I don't want to take away from that but I feel like I'm drowning and you have a life raft yeah right and I, I liked how there's a bit of humor in that in some way where when you just said I don't know if anybody else had to hang out with hookers and <laughs> like, like that's what's up with me, you know? Yeah, like, and that's honestly, I think I think that's where a lot of my humor comes from because it was so unbelievable, but it was happening. Like it was just like, even as like an eight year old or a ten year old or a twelve year old, I'm just sitting there going, "Really? Like, is this a choice that you've made, dear? You know, guardians? Like, is this a, really okay? So we're now we're doing this." Yeah, totally. And it's, um, it's interesting. Do you find you have a good sense of humor in, in some way because of these experiences? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm a nutball because I think everything is, you know, now that I'm, okay, I'm 37. So to give people an idea of how long it has taken to find humor in these things, um, it's interesting now because I think I've developed such an over-the-top set, ability to cope and an over-the-top healing tools for myself that now I can approach stress inducing situations and know that I can overcome them. Right. So I couldn't do that when I was 20. Um, I would freak out and have anxiety and panic attacks. Right. Whereas now I still have those mildly, like I don't have the same uh, immediate um, panic feeling, but, and now I can laugh at things and go, okay, that's weird. So let's talk about this. It's all doable. I can survive this. I'm going to stand up again. Just, let me wrap my mind around how weird this is or um, surprising or unpredictable, but not as devastating anymore. Yeah. And talk about some good, like (laughs) coping skills right there. It's all, (laughs) I'm going to survive all of this. Let me just, yes. How weird this is, how crazy this is, how honestly fucked up this is. Yeah. But like when you're a child and 
of course I've not lived your exact life. So I don't know what it's like to have my dad murder my mom in the bed that I'm sleeping. Like, you know, mm-hmm. that's a really unique experience to go through. And I'm assuming that that must have that must have made you feel so alienated and so isolated because it's like how do you how do you relate to people it's not like oh yeah like my mom drinks sometimes Mm -hmm. this is like this is one of the most traumatic things that could ever happen to a child that they would have to witness right it's almost like worldly or um probably surreal for some people to even talk about this with you in in some way or maybe not now but probably back then as as yeah it felt like I had a PhD in trauma and I was hanging out in kindergarten because I literally was in kindergarten right right like I was in grade one but like it felt like I had like this insane amount of experience and every time I went somewhere I wasn't allowed to talk about it because it would absolutely crush devastate horrify every experience every every interaction with anyone so it was like not only did I learn severe violation because I mean how where are you more safe than in your bed yeah exactly oh my god that's something I want to talk to you about as well yeah exactly yeah in the most surrendered state when you're sleeping right so like not only do I never feel safe awake I never feel safe asleep, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, and that's such a shame and such a a horrifying price to pay, I think, for a little, little kid to, like, take that peace from me. Not only is my peace, like, gone in my waking state, but now I never feel safe again, ever. I can't even go to sleep properly, right? And then to have, like, conversations, no one wants to hear about your dead mom, like, ever, no one like it's not cool you can't talk about that stuff nobody gives a shit because it's now what happened to me was I became the nurturer and the comforter of the people who heard the story so what a burden to like I I'm so I'm the one who's the victim and suffering and lost and then now I've told someone to like sort of find some relief or camaraderie and now they are devastated and so I become the nurturer of their feelings Yeah. And I think that's such a big thing when you're living something extremely traumatic and you're sharing or you live something traumatic and you're sharing the story with people, like you said, because you want to connect with people like that's a impulse, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But then you're telling them and then they can't even handle the story because it's so difficult. But now Mm -hmm. you have to take care of them because of your own story. Like, yeah. You have to take care of their reaction to something that you've lived because I think as a society and in a culture, we're not really used to talking about really difficult things. One, oh God, no. Right? And then two, we don't, I don't know, it's almost like people freeze up because they're like, oh, I don't want to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. And of course, like this context, like you're a child as well. So it's right. like a different layer to things, but mm-hmm. there's as a general rule, like I remember in your book, like you had to basically like hold space for adults who would like, they would look at you like it was like the most tragic thing, which it was, yes, but also they, to me, what I got from that, and you can tell me if that's how you felt or if you feel that that's accurate or not, it's almost like you were being treated as though you weren't a human being. Mm-hmm. You know? Absolutely. It was like expected of me to be robotic about it. Like, Iman, um, this happened, and you need to move on, and your mom's dead, and she's never coming back. Like, these are sentences that adults would say to me at six years old. She's not coming back, and she's, yeah, so you need to be strong. 
So how did you internalize that? Like, so you're getting this, these sentences like put into your psyche and into your experience of like, first of all, you also like lost your safe space. So it's like, yeah, that's like, as an adult, I find that difficult. So it's like, sure. how could you, how could you cope with that at six years old? Right. Um, mm-hmm. It, it becomes almost unthinkable, right? Yeah. It's, so you internalize that when people are like, you have to be strong. Like she's gone, she's dead, she's not here. Like that's shocking to the system for anyone, let alone a six-year-old. Right. Honestly, the first thing that comes to my mind is self-hatred. I began to hate the natural feelings I had, right? Because everyone around me was telling, them they were, telling me they were wrong. So I'm sad. You're telling me, stop it. I'm devastated. You're telling me to get over it. Um, I miss my mom. You're telling me, well, she's gone. So, you know, and so it was like very abrupt and and really cold and um, never honoring where I'm at, never saying it's okay to be sad. Like, of course you're sad, sweetheart. Your mom, you know, she died and she loved you so much. Like none of that. I didn't have comfort. (laughs) Um, So it was like this deep, I began to tell myself like, you're so weak. Because everyone is telling you that you shouldn't have these feelings. And so you must be a, just a, such a bad person, Iman. And I can't believe you're so weak at having these feelings. I hate myself. I wish I didn't cry. And I remember feeling like this deep, my entire adolescence, like this deep hate for myself. And I used to pray and wish and like beg thinking when I'm grown up, the first thing I'm going to do is have my tear ducts removed because oh. I am like so betrayed by my tears. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Like, what a weird idea. I mean, like, I don't even know if that's even a thing. But, like, you know, as a kid, I was like, I can't wait to get my tear ducts removed. Like, never mind fake tits or, like, a tummy tuck. Like, I want – I don't want to cry ever again. Yeah, because it's, like, crying made you actually even lose love from the mm-hmm. people who were there because it was it, – it, they were shaming you for it. It made them uncomfortable. Yeah. So then it's like, okay, well, you internalize that. I was like, okay, every time I cry, I'm getting – yeah, I'm getting shut down. I'm getting depressed. Mm-hmm. I'm getting also like I rejected. Get mad with yeah, rejected. They're mad at me for that. Mm-hmm. And obviously, that means I lose love. Yeah, I lose more love, and I have what do I have left to lose? Right. So I'm just gonna get my tear ducts removed. Seems like a legit solution. Right? I know for like an 11 year old, right? Like this is my thought. I was like, hmm, if I could just go to the doctor and have this fixed, then no one will hate me, and I'll be a good person. Yeah. Um, because it just felt like such a weakness that when I cried, people would, you know, my, my guardians, people who are supposed to care for me would say things like, you're such a baby. You're just such a little baby. Like you really need to grow up. And I'm thinking to myself, like, but I feel so grown up because all these, these really adult things have happened to me. And I don't know why I can't be a baby. Cause I am a fucking baby. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like, like if a seven-year-old said that to me, like, I feel really sad that my mom died. The, I just couldn't imagine shaming them for it. Of course. Yeah. So this is, I mean, this is interesting. Like I'm sitting here thinking, well, okay, how, and I remember this after I read the, the first book. I know you'll write another book, but um, <laughs> I, I remember messaging you being like, okay, well, how the fuck do you recover from this? Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, I was like, okay, what happened next? You know, like how, how do you live through all of this and then become who you are at 37 years old? Because seriously, like for people listening, like you are one of the most regulated humans I've ever met. Like straight up, (laughs) you have, you are so boundaried, but not in a like fucked up boundary. I keep swearing. Um, Yeah. (laughs) In a way that's, it's not like your boundaries are like 
so intense that like no. you can feel your heart or um that you know we can't connect with you it's, no. it's so, like you're just super regulated and such a solid human being thank um, you so that was my question after I read your book I was like oh, uh, how did you do this like, yeah how did you do this so because it's like just this this story that you're explaining around um being shamed for having your emotions like mm -hmm. how do you recover from that right how did you start noticing like whoa it's okay to have these emotions and how did you start to parent yourself in a way that you mm -hmm. only needed i love that you said parent because yeah. that's li literally what i felt my whole yeah. life that i was doing and there's so much that i want to like address which is the boundaries and i really appreciate what you said about that because it takes a lot of courage to have boundaries and i mean as a coach that's literally the one thing like the main thing that i'm trying to um address with everyone all of my clients is to have boundaries and really what is that it's respect and telling people how to respect and love you and show up for you right how to treat yeah. you yeah, I it, love that. Repeat that for the people. Boundaries like, are. <laughs> yeah, how to love and respect and treat me. That's what it is. I'm telling you how to relate to me. Um, that that makes me sad and that makes me feel left out. And I'm just giving you feedback, right? I'm just giving you information. It's a dance. Like our relationships are a dance. And if I'm saying like, ouch, or that didn't feel good, or, you know, here's how you could deepen your love for me if you want. Um, the people who want to will be so delighted that you shared that information and the people who aren't interested in respecting you or, or relating to you you'll notice who those people are because they just won't comply with your requests and so i also think that's really valid information because i want to know who's in my life that's not willing to um be more surrendered to my relationship or respectful to me or you know who's actually not interested because all i'm asking you to do is invest in me and if you're not willing to do that i don't want you here I love that. All I'm asking for you is to invest in me. And if you're not willing to do that, I don't want you here. Thank you. That was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And so I want to invest in the people who I respect, adore, and love. And I want you to feel safe and lifted, right? So um, when I became an adult, I was obviously none of those things. <laughs> and I didn't know what that meant. So I realized very quickly that I was behind, right? We touched on that. Like I was behind and I have just like everyone else, very big dreams and very big passions in my soul. And I'm a very expressive person. So I love art. I love dancing. I love movement. I love color. I love, you know, traveling. I love expressing. I've been a writer since I can remember. I had a book of poetry, you know, um, as a like 11 year old, like filled with poems. And that was just how I um, was able to express myself in secret was to write and I would hide my journals and things like that and um, hope to God you know no one ever found them but they always found them but anyway um, I was always just I didn't have a lot of outlets and so um, that was my one thing that was free right writing because I wasn't allowed to get dance lessons and all the things that my mom had me in I obviously went to the wayside in the homes that I lived in so I felt like the more I wrote was the only time I was being honest. Mm, oh, I love that. Yes. So yeah. writing was a way to maintain um, honesty. To me, I always say like writing, why I fell in love with writing is because it was sometimes the only thing that would allow me to still have the truth no matter what. Oh, yes. Yeah. No matter what. Exactly. Like the truth. That's, I think that's all we're searching for when we feel um, displaced is like, what is the truth? What is true? And um, 
I always ask my clients that when we have like these, you know, we imagine a lot of things are, are we perceive to be true. And I always say, but is that true? Is it true that he or she or, you know, that happened or they didn't like you or they did that, right? You might be feeling that, but is it true? And so I grew up thinking I hated myself. I was a terrible person. I was obviously broken and the world must hate me because of all these terrible circumstances, which is pretty logical for a kid. And then, but I always remembered my mom always told me how beautiful I was and how fun and she loved it. We laughed and we danced and, you know, she taught me how to belly dance and she taught me how to like help her cook and to the extent that a five, six year old can help cook. And, um, she just showed me her joys of sewing and reading and writing. And, you know, I was six when she died and I knew how to read and write, you know? So it was like, and I had to swim. I knew how to do like some things that she had taught me, which were gifts uh, in her absence. And so I remember getting to 18, 19, 20 and thinking, I want to feel the way my mom, my mother saw me like that, that beauty, right? Like that was all I'd ever wanted again was her love because that was the time that I felt whole and I never felt whole after that. And so I had to literally fall to my knees, surrender and say, okay, so how do I get that? And for me, that meant, um, going and asking for help because I just knew I could never get there by myself. Like writing wasn't enough. Traveling wasn't enough. Um, saying nice things to myself wasn't enough. Like I just didn't have the skills, you know, of, um, intense therapy. And even knowing that I had CPTSD, like, hello, if you don't even know you have an illness, how can you ever treat it? Like, so I, I actually felt like so embarrassed to go to therapy at first because that was like an admission of like insanity. Like, Oh God, they're going to put me away. And I'm like, everyone's going to know that I've had these crazy thoughts or that I, you know, how I am on the inside. And I had to like tell myself, like, it's either that or never be happy. Like, and you're not really living if you're not for me, I wouldn't be living if I wasn't living my honestly. So I went and I like, and then I realized that I wasn't crazy that everything I was feeling was pretty normal compared, you know, for like for the things that I'd seen and dealt with. And I acquired tools and I acquired, I didn't even know how to express emotion because I was never allowed to say I'm angry or I'm sad. Like I remember going to therapy as an adult and how humiliating I felt when the therapist would be like, okay, so tell me what you're feeling right now. And I was like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting how I think, okay. So I have a couple of thoughts actually, and then I want to <laughs> you on the story. Um, <laughs> one of the things that strikes me the most about this is that you weren't allowed to have any kind of emotions. Thus you kind of had to dissociate from what you felt most likely. Right. Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. Cause it wasn't safe to have emotions. Cause you know, I'm remembering from your book, like your foster mom, when she's the one who would often tell you like mm-hmm. um you're a baby you know yeah. like like you said you were you were a baby but also like you were in like one of the most like never mind that you just went through like the worst trauma as a child but then you know then you're put into these these houses that aren't safe either so it's not like mm-hmm. you can recover from what you've just seen experienced um you know, it's not like you're being loved to wholeness or you're, no. you're, you're being loved in a safe space that you can relax in. Like your system is like completely alert constantly because yeah. 
you're living in an actually like unsafe environment and it's not just like a perceived unsafe environment it is unsafe right that's right hyper adrenalized like hyper adrenalized my entire life yeah 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 and then you know of course you don't know your feelings you don't know how to express them because you the whole time you've just been told that you know you're gonna get attacked that was the result every time you had a feeling right shut down shut down shut down shut down like literally it was so hard. I couldn't even like friends. Like I, I didn't know, I, you know, you say disassociate and that just like, like it was the absolute truth. Like I didn't even know how to relate as a friend. Like I couldn't even, I didn't even care about people. Isn't that awful? Like I didn't even, I didn't know how to be your friend. I didn't know how to, because to me, everyone leaves and everyone abandons you and everyone just destroys you. So you can't give them anything. So I would just be with you, but I would never care about you like I might think I care about you in the way that I could but it wasn't deep well I just look at it from like a trauma like SC standpoint and it's like well duh because you couldn't attach to anyone right like attaching to someone was like a death like you know what I mean like it yeah it was assuring you a death you know Mm -hmm. so totally yeah And, and the thing is is like probably in those moments like that was the smartest thing for your system to do because if you attached to oh. crazy people you know yeah then, you know stigmatizing them as crazy might not be helpful but i just mean like these abusive people um, yes to you um if you were attached to them like oh my gosh what would happen when they dropped you right right, right. or would right? Yeah. And they were severely mentally unwell. Like they took many, you know, different medications for their disorders and things like that. So they weren't in a really good place either, right? To help me. Um, So it was really unfortunate, like looking back and I know like if anyone reads my book, Cracked Open, Never Broken, it's like, you know, it's all coming from a very healed place that I am in now, but I I wrote it as the time I was experiencing the pain at the time. So um, that I would I want to see people on the journey with me and, you know, but now looking back, of course I, you know, I forgive them and I see how they weren't in the space to help me. They weren't, even though it was their job, um, we're not always up for the job that we have. Right. Yeah. And that's actually bringing me to my next point is how do you deal with anger? Like, how are you not angry constantly? I know, (laughs) I know it's been like 20 years or more than that since you 30. Yeah. So 30 years since, since my mom died, but like, but then you've been an adult and out of foster care. That's like about 20 at this point. Yeah. 19. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I know you've had a couple of years to like process all of this. Yeah. Um, Were you angry for a long time? Like for me, I, I have such a hard time with um, forgiving people. (laughs) Yeah. I get very, I get attached to my anger because I feel like if I'm no longer angry, then they're let off the hook. And I know that that's not like technically true and logically true and all of these Mm -hmm. things, but that's a very real self experience for me. And I I know that I'm not the only one, like it's very hard for me to, um, like you said, just, I forgive them because I, they weren't up for the job. Like they couldn't do it. They had their own things. to me, I have a hard time coming to that conclusion and just being at peace with it. So can you tell us a little bit about your journey with anger and how you've come to a place where you can say that? And from what I can gather, genuinely mean it. Mm-hmm. That's a really powerful point because um, I know you know how much I love forgiveness and how much I teach forgiveness. And um, only because I've practiced 
the opposite resentment uh, my entire life. And I was very angry, very angry. And I think um, anger robs you of yourself, right? Oh, it's not. Yeah, yeah, tell us more. <laughs> yeah, it's just not who you really are. Like, I don't believe that's who I am. I think it's part of, you know, we're human experience and we experience all of these feelings and um, perceptions. But I, obviously, my father being a fucking murderer, guys, like, it's just, like, so insane even to say it, like, even though it's my whole life, like, it's just, like, even to say it is really bizarre. Um, But having that and being splashed on the front cover of newspapers in your own town and, like, in cities and, you know, like, just growing up being this kind of, like, circus freak of emotion and experience made me very angry because it wasn't ever about me feeling better it was always like this happened to you and oh my god and it was gossipy and gross and um people weren't genuinely wanting to be my friend maybe in school they wanted to hear about my story they wanted to gossip about me they wanted to like you know what I mean so I felt like an entertainment piece as well which robbed the authentic feelings that I had and so um it felt very it's like the way, you know, you hear how people like romanticize murderers and, and people who are like in prison, you know, you hear about that and you're like, oh, that's really weird. Why would anyone do that? But I felt like in school, people were doing that. They're like, oh my God, where is he now? What's he like? Like, what, you know, and I was like, ooh, like, are we romanticizing my father? Like, this is weird. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I just feel like I hated him <laughs> for a really long time and it stopped me from doing so many things. Like hating him and being afraid of him stopped me from doing so many things. I never wanted to be uh, known. So I would never speak of my story. I had friends my like for decades that didn't even know my mother was murdered. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So was a pe- was, okay, tell me if that was like, so why? Tell me why. Well, I was ashamed, right? So I was such like deep, deep shame. So I created this place where I was normal. So I never had, I never talked about my childhood. I would never have shared any of the things I would never have imagined writing a book. I wanted to write and I wanted to write a book, but I knew this is what I told myself before. Like, that's not, a, that's not a possibility for you, Iman, because then everyone will know your shame. And so we must protect our shame so deeply that we never live authentically. Yeah. And then were you like scared that people were going, I have two questions. Were you scared that people were going to think like you were too much and like this was you know, this, this was just a little too much. And then you were going to be rejected or was it? Yes. (laughs) Oh yes. And yes. Like such shame that I was ashamed to say it out loud, but also such fear of rejection that when I, if I did ever get the courage to say it out loud, that you would laugh or spit in my face and think you're just like, Oh my God, you freak. Like you being too much has always been the theme of my whole life. You're too loud. You talk too much. You're too sad. You're too, like, you always want to talk about your mom. You're too feely, you know? Oh my gosh. Yeah. 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 Okay. So then that was really present for you as well. So by doing that, um, do you feel like you, because you said authentic, like to me, I'm really obsessed with this whole concept of biological authenticity right now which basically means in se like are you authentically attuned to what's actually happening or are you like breaking off fragments of your experience and shutting down emotions and 
Or are mm-hmm. you in tune with yourself and actually working with what's up for you rather than what you're trying to be in some way or another? So anyway, just that little snippet there made me think of biological authenticity in the sense of I'm sure that having to forgo like who you were to maintain these friendships that you were interested in having or mm-hmm. relationships that you were interested in having, I'm, I'm almost positive, but I want you to talk about <laughs> that it probably made you feel not whole in your skin. Like you probably mm-hmm. felt like there's pieces of me missing. You probably were constantly like low, mildly depressed in some way or another because- Oh God, yeah. Yeah, because it's like you weren't yourself. Like you weren't allowed to be exactly who you were, right? Right. And all of my weaknesses, so to speak, just being honest, like to me, authentic just meant like, are you being honest? Like if you're sad, you say you're sad, you feel sad and you honor your sad. You don't pretend to be happy, right? Like you don't pretend to be fine when nothing's fine. Um, And so I was never allowed to or encouraged to. In fact, I was deeply punished by being true to myself or honest if I felt sad. It was always very conscious and made known to me that if I was not happy, bubbly, and entertaining, that I was of no use. Oh, yes. Yeah. And do you feel like this was in your childhood and they're also in your adulthood? Like, Well, I absorbed it in my childhood. It was made known to me that if I was not just easygoing and go with the flow, I mean, this is what everyone else is doing and you're just going to go with the flow. Like I was never allowed or encouraged to be the leader or the one who wanted to do the thing. Um, but which is funny cause I'm super oppositional. Like I do not like going with the flow. <laughs> I am very opinionated and I love following what I like to do. Like I do, I'm a leader. I do like to lead. Um, so it was very difficult for me to always be the back seat, you know, and just let it like go along with things. Um, but when you're, orphaned and you live in different homes you kind of have to you have to be a chameleon of sorts Mm -hmm. so I learned very yeah you just got to go with the flow you have to or you're gonna be very miserable like you're just so I always like I'd go into a family and I would observe how they acted how they ate what they thought was good cool funny and I would become an actor and I would just sort of be like oh I like that too and this is who we are now Right. So in a way, like you were actually super smart in your system because you knew how to survive, you know? Of course, Yes. I have a, inc- I mean, I think all, all of us have this incredible survival instinct, but when you have to use it is when you'll find out where you can tune it up. And I think um, one of the, all of my, um, all of the things that I consider strengths this day have been finely tuned by all of the things I thought were weaknesses as a child. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I like how you said something around the lines of you were be, being deeply punished for yeah, basically. And right, I think that just to share a little bit of my snippet too, so that people can relate to the anxiety piece. We haven't touched on it, but when my parents got divorced and there was a lot of violence in our home, um, I became anxious. Like it was, mm-hmm. I just began to have panic attacks. Mm-hmm. I would get punished for being anxious and nervous because it was kind of like inconvenient. Like it was like, okay, <laughs> Emily, like stop having a panic attack. Like this is so like, I don't have the time for this. Like that was, right. like, that was the messaging that mm-hmm. was given to me, both from my mom and from my dad. It's, it's not just one of them. Like they both were annoyed that I was anxious mm-hmm. because it was cutting. Um, <laughs> like it was, it mm-hmm. was, 
actually like calling them to see that what they were doing was fucked up and like mm-hmm. the situation that we were in was really fucked up. Um, obviously, like I don't want to throw my mom under the bus necessarily because um, she wasn't the one who was being violent. Um, however, the, the way she was handling the divorce and the way that she was handling the situation um, was highly traumatic for me. So mm-hmm. I had like, on one hand, my dad was being violent. And then on the other hand, my mom was like in and out, super inconsistent, like disorganized mm-hmm. attachment to the fullest extreme. And I was just panicking because I was like, guys, I can't hold the whole family. Like I'm right. old. I don't know how to take care of you. I don't know how to take care of a, my little brother. I don't know how to do any of this. And um, I began to get panic attacks. But mm-hmm. the, the first times... I still remember them super clearly that it was a burden and it wasn't okay. And I was being punished and I was losing love because of something that was actually pretty normal in, a, in my reaction. So I think that that's such a, I bring it up because it's such a common thing when people are going through trauma or are around people who are not regulated themselves or suffering themselves as children um, when our caregivers are in that position. Yeah. Usually, usually get shamed or punished for having normal human reactions. And then we internalize that as, well, I can't be authentic because it's not safe to be authentic. As every time I'm authentic, every time I say what's true for me, every time I express myself, look at what happens. Right. Right. Yeah. You bring that into adulthood. And then, you know, you like, I still sometimes catch myself like being like, I hate you. Like, I hate myself because of Mm. the anxiety that I experience. Right. Right. Which is like, this is not how I would treat a child. It's not how I would treat a friend. It's definitely how I would treat a client, of course. Mm -hmm. But yet, it's so internalized that it still comes up. Right. So, what I'm wondering about you is like, can we go back to when you went to therapy and then Mm -hmm. you started to learn how to parent yourself? Um, and you started to understand that being authentic, I don't know how you understood this. So I'd like you to tell us (laughs) 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 how you started to understand that being authentic and telling the truth and being honest on where you're at. Um, the way that you were approached as a child was actually faulty and it wasn't you who was faulty. How did that happen? Well, I think what something you just said about speaking with your, um, your growing up, uh, what you just said something about, um, how your, your fears and anxiety weren't convenient, right? Cause they were like annoying to everyone. And I love that. And I have, like, as soon as you said that, I was like, you know what? That's so true. Being human is not fucking convenient. Is it? Like, it's just not convenient, right? And I think what happens, though, somehow our humanness has this false idea that being alive should be convenient and easy. Like, it's just so funny because everything is quite difficult and mm-hmm. never convenient. And like we have these, like, that's why grief is so uncomfortable. Like, everyone's like, oh, my God, I don't want to be uncomfortable. And like, what the fuck's wrong with you? Everything's uncomfortable. Like, being growing is uncomfortable being good at something is uncomfortable like moving through things is uncomfortable healing is uncomfortable even exercise is uncomfortable like there's nothing I don't know why we're so attached to these things that we don't actually experience very often but um, we are and I realized when I went to therapy that like nothing in my life had been convenient Hmm. nothing was easy nothing being 
uh, traumatized is actually very annoying and very difficult and super inconvenient and so time consuming and emotionally draining. And so I too was one of the pod people trying to be right, like a convenient, happy, Oh, look at me. I'm smiling and I'm successful. And if I have a lot of great friends and a job that everyone likes, and I'm dating a guy that everyone approves of, maybe I'll just be great. Um, and I realized that like, that was just bullshit. That's not true. If I don't like myself, none of this is worth it. None of this, I don't even want to be alive. And I just started to think that I was like, I don't want to be alive if I don't get to do it the way I want. Mm. Because when you have everything robbed of you, like, so my entire family, my whole like, sense of safety and self and health, emotional, mental, and physical is robbed of me. I thought, so what do I have to lose then? What's the, like, if I don't take a chance on being happy, what, what else is there? This, this chaos that's in my head and constant aching and screaming and hating myself. Like, this is what I have to live for. Like, I don't, I don't want this. I already did this. So I jumped into therapy. I was like, you know what? Okay, fine. Fix me, people. They also good at your job. Do it. Fix me. Help me. And what I learned very quickly was that obviously the work was for me to do. (laughs) 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 Uh, I was ready with my pad and paper, you know, like, all right, so tell me the steps. And they're like, okay, so here's what you need to do, girlfriend. Um, And then I realized that there was nothing to lose by by loving myself. And I realized that I had the hate, like I just hated myself. Like I can't, it hurts me so much to remember that. Like it just, I just feel so sad that I, I wasted so much life just like not respecting myself. And that's where the, the boundaries come in where I started to, it took me so long. Like Emily, people would have to show me a chart with like little, like little, little emoji faces that I'm sure were not, were not called emojis in the nineties. Okay. That were like little faces that were like, sad, happy, confused. And I would have to point at them. Like that's how completely unskilled I was at my emotion. Okay. I would have to point and be like, um, I'm a bit of like this guy and that guy, I guess. Yeah. And it was a long, slow, very patient on the behalf of the mental health professionals. And then we realized Oh gosh, Iman, did you know anything about, do you know anything about post-traumatic stress disorder? Like you're literally always anxious. You are suffering from an anxiety disorder that you are constantly in fight or flight. You, your adrenals set off faster than everyone else's. Did you know that your brain actually changed chemically? Like, did you know that your brain actually started developing differently and parts of your brain never actually developed the way other healthy, so to speak, people's brains would? And so I was sort of like looking and it's like, Imagine walking around, you know, trying to run a race and someone has cut off your leg at the knee um, and you're just not, no one's ever told you. And you're just like, oh, why am I not fast like everyone else? Why do I always fall down? And no one has mentioned the elephant in the room of your trauma. I love that you just shared this because this is such a beautiful way. I'm so grateful for um, the past 10 years and stigma reduction because I think Mm -hmm. now there's so much more information. Like when you were diagnosed with PTSD, when I was diagnosed with PTSD, like I didn't know what the fuck that was. No. No clue. But like now for the most part, like everybody knows what that is. Like not – not everybody's actually skilled in understanding the impacts of it and what it actually does to a body, a system, and a soul. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. However, like, it's it's pretty common knowledge what anxiety is at the very least, mm-hmm. right? But I remember when I was diagnosed with anxiety, um, I, like, I was like, no, like, I have a heart problem. Like, what are you guys talking uh... about? You know, like, I don't know. I don't know what this 
anxiety. Like I knew, I knew what it was like to be nervous and I would relate mm-hmm. to it as like, you know, before you go talk in front of the class, like mm-hmm. nervous is right. Like yeah, butterflies, like, yeah. but never did I really understand like, of course the mechanisms of anxiety biologically, but I didn't even really understand what it was like emotionally either. Like, right. So it's just crazy to me that there was a time in which no one really like socially spoke about what trauma was. And it was like that big elephant in the room. So you did, and I'm sure people still feel this way, to be honest, even with a lot of the knowledge that we have at our fingertips, like quite literally with our phone at the, at this moment, mm-hmm. um, I'm sure people still feel like that. Like I'm running a race, but like my foot got cut off and I'm mm-hmm. slower because of that. But no one told me that my foot got cut off. So. Yeah. Like it feels like my foot's missing. Yeah. But no one seems to bring it up, so I'm. I don't want to like just start saying shit that might not be true. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> like I don't know. Am I am I supposed to be fast? I think everyone's thinking I'm supposed to be fast, so I, yeah. I guess I just suck. Yeah, exactly. And then you feel like I should be fast. Like this should be this should yeah. be easier for me. Like, what's the deal here, right? Like, I have that experience of. Um, I think you were writing that about in your book too, of you know just not really going to school a lot, mm-hmm. and like I remember I didn't go to school that much and people would like shame the crap out of me for not going to school. Mm. And then I was like, something's so wrong with me, but I was just like so ill. Like I was just in bed mm. all the time because I was just struggling so hard. Right. Right. Um, but I just felt, I internalized that and it sounds like you internalized it too until you realized, like, Oh, like this is an actual thing. Um, I internalize it as like, there's like a personal flaw with me. Like there's something mm-hmm. like deeply specific to me, Emily Obey, I mm-hmm. am wrong. Like, cause I can't be yeah. everybody else. Like, I don't know why, but I can't, I can't do it. Right. You're the broken toy. Like, that's how I always felt. I was like, I'm the broken toy in the toy box that nobody wants to play with because I can't do the other things like the other Barbies and dolls and stuff. Like I'm just not ever the good one that you pick. Yeah. So in your PTSD recovery, like noticing that you had it and that it was no. and that like the oh. around it was like, whoa, life changing, right? Oh my god. I was like, oh my god, I'm finally like someone's seeing me. It's like being invisible and then someone's like, Hi, sweetheart. No, of course that's no, you're you're doing this and this is why and that's why and this makes sense there and this is a very natural, very good, you're human, all right, we give you a thumbs up, you're a good person. And I was like, What? <laughs> like are you sure? I thought, yeah. Like, honestly, there was a big fear. And I, I, you know, when we talk about stigma, I was very afraid that someone was going to like peek into my brain and go, so we're going to have to lock you up for the rest of your life because you're not able to be in society and uh, you're not normal. And we've confirmed that. So, you know, like this is a big fear. I think that people who are suffering from trauma are like dealing with, they're afraid that someone's going to go, okay, yeah, you're right. Something's very wrong with you. We have to actually put you down. Right. Right. Cause it's like, like, that's feeling like you're no good. Like there, yes. yeah, you're not even worth being alive because there's something wrong with you. Right. Like we're going to just start from scratch. So yeah. It'll be easier to do that, just to like do away with you. And you're like, oh my God, like it's, I was afraid. So when I finally heard of these things, of course, I didn't tell anyone else, right? Like I still wasn't like, oh, I have PTSD. Okay, cool. This makes sense. Like I was like silently partying at home being like, okay, okay. So what does it mean? Let me read about it. What is that? Okay. So this is like, you know, and everyone talks about war veterans is like the very most famous example of PTSD um, because it was just so many 
people have have come back from war and had that happen to them so I was understanding it through that point of view going like okay so like well yeah like if I saw if I was a war veteran and I saw these things like that would make sense to me so why doesn't it make sense to me that I saw really terrible things and and, and abusive things happen to me and well that would make sense and it started to like kind of click together in my brain and my heart and I realized that when I there were certain things that I was never going to be in control of for example the effects of the PTSD but I could really control other things like the way I ate or having um, physical exercise like physical exercise for for my brain is just super medicinal like it just really changes how I feel and whenever I'm having a panic attack I have found for me work what works is to actually get ahead of the panic so my adrenaline goes off like a bomb right my whole body floods with adrenaline I'm now like having a hard time breathing I I all these terrible thoughts are coming in and I I I feel sweaty and, and just like really scared and so what I've started doing is going for a run and like actually pumping that adrenaline making it like work for me so to speak and I hate running by the way like <laughs> so I'm not like the super athlete that wants to go running like um so I just started doing that where I started to get use my nervous system when it was saying like we're panicking oh my god there's so much adrenaline I'd be like okay let's run because like it feels like a bear's chasing you so let's run yeah and that's and I talk about this on the podcast in different episodes but um um, this is a concept called like discharging the stress energy, right? So it's like it's yes. getting activated, it's in your body, and then you're going to discharge it through like, for example, like straight up running because it is like the energy that's flowing through and the ke- like the chemical cocktail is really what I mean by the energy flowing mm-hmm. through at that point mm-hmm. um, is really preparing you to be able to run. So if like you don't run and you like don't discharge the stress energy, then it just kind of has to go back into repression. Right. Like, and then I love that. Yeah, it goes back into repression and then it just like chills there. And then whoops, like when there's space for, for it to come out again, there you go, random out of the blue panic attack. So, you know, it's that's smart. And I love that mm-hmm. you that it sounds like pretty early on in the recovery journey. I love what you said about there are some things I was never going to be able to control, like the effects of the PTSD. That's like life-changing sentence for me right there. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I can control is things like food, physical exercise, I'm telling myself, things like that, right? Right. And how... You know, all I ever wanted was other people to show up for me, right? And all I ever wanted as a kid growing up was someone just to kneel down and say, like, that is really shitty. I'm sorry that you have had this experience, but I just want you to know that you're really important and I'm here. And if you ever want to tell me something or if you just want to be around someone who just is okay with you, happy, sad, or angry, then I'm going to be that person for you. And Like that makes me emotional to tell you that, Emily. And the thing about how beautiful that is, is that I had to become that person. Like you say about parenting me, that was the first step was like being a parent is, are you going to show up and love this person, even if it's yourself, no matter what? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that gives me chills. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so my steps were very small of almost like birthing myself and being like okay man so what is it like you're 18 19 20 what what is it like you're angry okay you hate your father yeah he's a pretty shitty dude so let's talk about that how are we going to process that what do you want to do about that and you know I would write about it I would journal about it I would um 
dance about it. Like I, you know, I became a, a belly dancer and I started working out crazily. Like I just, I have a, like I'm super A type personality anyway. So I have like obsessive mind. And so when I do something, I'm really in it. Um, <laughs> I, I really commit. So I became like a person who went to the gym every day and I, I didn't know why it felt so good, but I love what you're saying, like discharging stress energy. I didn't, I didn't recognize it at the time as that. Um, but I just knew that I was like, you know, it makes me feel good. It makes me feel like I'm using all of this pain for something. And, um, you know, by the time I became like when I was around 25 is when I realized that I had only could go so far with all of the tools that I had. And that the problem I was really having was that I was afraid of my father even though he was in jail, I was just like really afraid of him. And I had, I still had nightmares. And um, I knew I was giving him a lot of power over my decisions because like I said before, I, I didn't want to be known. I didn't want anyone to know me because what if he could find me? Like was one of my deep rooted fears. Yeah. And so I knew that if I continued the rest of my life being afraid of him, that I wouldn't live properly the way that I knew I could live and that I wanted to live. So that's when I made the decision to face him. So, yeah, because my question becomes, how did you become not afraid of him? So, you know that I have a history I was raped, um, which is not the same trauma that you lived, but I can relate to this um, feeling of like, I can't, like, basically you own my decisions because I'm mm -hmm. so scared of you. And mm -hmm although it wasn't the same context, that was also one of my biggest concerns and fears at the time, mm. really in the thick of my PTSD. Um, right. So how does, how did you, yeah, how did you become, like you said, that's when I faced him, but what does that mean? Right. How did you get like set free from being afraid if, if you don't mind sharing with us? No, of course not. So I think what you just said is so powerful that, when people violate us, no matter how, right, there's no comparing violation. It's a violation. And if it's a 20 out of 10 for you, then that's what it is, right? Like, so there's no, um, there's definitely, unfortunately, no scale of trauma, right? Like, it's just, I feel like it's however it affects each and in, in unique individual. Um, but the thing that I found for myself, and I don't know if you feel this way, is that when someone takes away when someone violates you and robs you of a part of yourself, of your happiness, of your sexuality, of, you know, um, your joy, anything that they violate you, they, they, they do rob you. I had this um, illusion that they were now in control of all of me. Oh, and, I feel like I, I felt the same way. So I relate to that. Yeah. Yes. And so what I find a lot happens with myself and a lot of victims of violence that I work with is that they are then we're waiting for the person who violated us to actually now give us permission to continue. Mm, interesting. Tell me more about that. Yeah. So I use this kind of example and I don't know if it helps other people, but it helps me. It's like you park your car in front of your house. Okay. You go to sleep. Yeah. Someone breaks into your car, right? They smash the windows. They, you know, steal your tires, rims, everything is fucked, right? They scratch up your car. You wake up and you're like, so pissed off, right? You know, you can't get to work. You got to call the police. You got to do all this stuff. So when we think of things like that, when we're violated materialistically, right? We think, 
okay, I got to call the police. I got to call my insurance. I have to sweep the glass that's on the street because I don't want anyone else to get hurt by it. Um, I obviously want to make an appointment to either, you know, get my car fixed or ditched, whichever is going to work for you. But you're making decisions. You're taking action and you're controlling the aftermath, right? Yeah. And obviously a car break-in or materialistic, I'm not saying that those are comparable violations, okay? Um, I don't want anyone to misunderstand me. But it's just how, how I, for myself, felt like, that's a situation where I would take control. I would then, I would never wait for the robber to come back and tell me what to do with my car. I would never wait for him or her to come back and say, sorry about that. Um, I just want you to know, I thought your car was really cool and it was a really awesome car and it's still allowed to exist. Um, I hope it gets up and running again. And I just feel really shit about what I did to it. Like no one would, that sounds ridiculous. Right. However, when we're violated sexually or violently or, or all of the ways um, betrayed by other people, personally, I felt like I was waiting for my father because he destroyed, he not only de literally destroyed my mother, he destroyed my childhood. He, his actions controlled the fact that I no longer had any choices, that I had to go live with strangers, that I had to be molested, beaten, starved, um, raped, um, you know, emotionally assaulted, physically abused, like all, like his action just changed all of those things for me. Yeah. So I was unconsciously waiting for him to now say like, okay, baby girl, I'm really sorry about that. And I really hope that the rest of your life you do you because you're really special. Like, I didn't feel very special because you assaulted, you violated me, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I was that broken down car that, like, was just stripped. And I didn't feel in control of taking back my power. And so when I realized that, it's almost like I was going to go see him. I think part of me, like, thought that he would have some wisdom that he would impart on me that would make me feel better right. about me. Or at least see me and say, like, you're... I love you. You're amazing. I'm sorry. Yeah. Even though like now when I think of that, that's almost silly to me because none of those things like mean anything from him. <laughs> but so I felt the need to go see him. So I literally went to prison. Mm. So you faced him like legitimately. Mm hmm. And I don't think everyone has to do that, obviously. That's not part of forgiveness. Um, forgiveness has literally no, you don't have to do anything with the other person. Uh, but I, I was so angry and like hated myself so much that I just was like, like, I'm going to look this guy in the face. And then did that, so I'm trying to remember in the book, you did write this in the book, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And afterward I, I'm like gapping on what happened after and I don't know why I'm having a blackout around this That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's like really important so yeah, I, okay. yeah so you you go and I, I had the feeling like that that set you free but I don't remember why like why did it set you free to face him in that way and I guess because you took your power back but anyway tell us instead no yeah no worries it's because so I had all these expectations right and I think everyone can relate a little bit to this. When you want someone to be sorry, yeah, you want we want them to grovel, right? We don't want people to just be like, "Hey, girl, sorry about that." Oh we want God. people to be like, yeah, totally. "Like, get on your knees and beg, bitch!" Like, yeah. you know, like get down there and fucking you, you, you should be sorry because like I am waiting for it to forgive you, but like 
people think of forgiveness as this like kind of snotty bestowing thing that we do to other people like like this holier than thou like I am going to forgive you when I'm ready but it's something I'm doing and I'm in control of it and when we're grieving or in resentment of course we want that power right so I used to feel like my forgiveness was going to be this like like he should be lucky like that I should forgive him, right? Like if ever that comes to, you know, but he has to first grovel and be very, very sorry. Yeah. Um, and so now I have a completely different feeling about forgiveness, but at that, like that time, I mean, and even still now, if someone like pisses me off, I still think to myself like, oh, oh, like, you know, like you need to be sorry, woman. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I went there hoping, I guess, uh, in my naivety of that he would be really repenting. Mm-hmm. and he, he wasn't mm-hmm. right like he just he didn't even admit that he did it like he literally has never pled guilty in his life so the fact that I was going to be this special being his daughter his little girl that was going to like evoke this imaginary like you know sympathy and empathy that he was supposed to have and it like it didn't happen it was very like anticlimactic and so the minute I looked in his eyes and saw that he wasn't not only not sorry, not even participating, mm. he was like, what do you mean? I didn't do anything. And I was like, oh. And it was then that I realized he didn't have anything for me. And yeah, and in that moment too, like also being told that when you witnessed it. Yeah. Yeah. I can't even imagine. So, yeah. So, so the first second is insult, right? It's a slap in the face, right? Because yeah. I saw you. And I think we, a lot of us can, ex- can relate to that where you know someone's lying. Yeah. Right? And you know, I know the truth. I know the truth, right? It keeps going through your head. Yeah. And I think... You get, like, attached to the truth. You're like, I need to tell everybody the truth. You yes, know? the yeah. truth. I have the truth, right? Yeah. And when I saw that it, I didn't feel sane convincing him. Yeah, no, I would, yeah, that I really, I would probably. Do you know what I mean? Like, I know that I'm right. Yeah, yeah. Because I was there and I saw, and he kept saying, well, you were too small to remember. And I thought, oh, that's an excuse you made to feel better. Right. And when I realized that and backing up, like, with all of the therapy and all of the healing I had done, then the confidence in who I am and the confidence in how much I respect myself, I no longer felt the need to defend the truth. Yeah. Because I think before that I was like holding torches and I was like, I am the truth defender and I am going to come and show you that you are wrong and you are (laughs) unworthy. Like, you know what I mean? Like I was like this, like this, queen of forgiveness have coming to like you know and I'm like who the fuck are you I mean, it, yeah it doesn't matter it doesn't matter he doesn't yeah. know what the fuck he's talking about he's a crazy murderer he doesn't know he doesn't even care he literally is who knows what he's thinking is he is he mentally insane well I would imagine you have to be somehow to kill people like so so I'm gonna have a logical conversation with a convict who killed my mom like mm-hmm. I thought oh my god I almost found it not funny, but humorous in a way that was like, you man, you're happy. You're trying to have a logical conversation with this guy. Right. Yeah. That come on, you know, better than that. You're smarter than that. Yeah. That's yeah. 
yeah and even like if people are listening and it's you know they've not been in this specific situation um i can relate to just even with my relationship ending with someone who like lied to me for months Hmm. um it's I kind of feel the same way it's like I'm not I don't know I can't I can't really talk to someone who doesn't make any sense right and like I need to be and it's not comparing him to murder no 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 no. there's no comparing yeah but it's that feeling of like I think we can all understand that like once we really know the truth for ourselves and the truth of the situation and we're not gaslighting our own selves anymore, mm-hmm. like it doesn't really matter what the person who abused us or hurt us or did whatever, um, lied to us, betrayed us, whatever it might be. It doesn't really matter what their story is anymore. That, that right there. Yeah. And that's what, why I'm sharing. Cause it doesn't really like whatever their story is, it doesn't really matter. You know, the truth, you know, you know what's real you know right. because you're I think when you heal then you process things it's there's such a clarity around like this is what happened this is how it made me feel this is what I'm still you know feeling about it and I'm connected to myself and I know the truth and I don't need the person to actually acknowledge that that's the truth anymore. that's right because your happiness is not based on them understanding okay yeah. Yeah. It doesn't matter. So this is what I had to admit to myself or come to terms with. I deserve to be happy, healthy, safe, and whole, no matter what. So if I believe that, if I truly believe that, then I have to live that and always come back to that in a respect to myself. And that's where we talked about the boundaries. So I deserve to always, as much as possible, and it's not always possible in every moment, right? Because we're human. Again, it's inconvenient but I deserve at the most to always choose the most respectful, happy, safe, whole choice. And it doesn't matter whether you or anyone else thinks that I am worthy, capable or deserving of that. It's none of your fucking business. Yeah. 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 And I love, I love that freedom that comes from being there in your recovery process Mm -hmm. and not needing to, yeah, just not needing to have to, look outside of your own self mm-hmm. that confirmation and that's the thing we don't ha- and so like forgiveness is an internal thing that has nothing to do with the other person um understanding and I think once we get over the idea that I, I want you to understand how I feel mm-hmm. like that's an attachment to them right that's an attachment to there's conditions to your forgiveness the forgiveness doesn't make you doesn't mean like my one you know my father did okay or that I can condone his choice or that I'm like, all right, you know what? Well, we all make mistakes. Like, no, 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 no. Right. Like, no, no, no. No, 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 no. Like, no, no, no. I think you're terrible. Like I, I don't want to mince words. I think you're fucked. Like I don't ever think what you did was okay, justified, right. Or anything good. Like, so that's to me not forgiveness. Like I still, maybe it's not holy of me, but I'm still judging you for that. And I will never forget. So I don't believe in this forgive and forget, right? No, no. I'm going to actually use this information anytime I am in relation with you. So oh, people say so forgiven, right? Like so good, yeah. I, I'm going to constantly, it's on your resume. So 
Like I'm going to remember. Can't, you can't erase this, but I love that because that's such a regulated thing to say and just be and do in life because it's mm-hmm. like, it's, it, yeah, because it's, I'm going to use this information whenever I have contact with you or whenever I'm mm-hmm. in relation with you, whether that's just emotionally by myself, you know? Right. Yes. Anyway. Like I, yeah, I believe that for me, you start out with hundred percent respect and then you chip away at it as you choose to. Okay. So if you demolish every ounce of respect that I gave you from the beginning, then you don't have any left with me. Um, maybe it can come back. Maybe we'll see, but um, I'm going to treat you how you act. Right. So I don't have respect for my father, but I forgive him. Yeah. And I like, tell us more about just the, the forgiveness piece. It's not forgiving and forgetting, but what is right. it? Right. So for me, it's accepting. Okay. okay. I, I was, so when we're trying to get people to understand our point of view, you're not accepting the situation, right? You're not accepting. You're trying to make people understand. That's, that's a big edge for me because I really mm-hmm. try to make people understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's a rub, right? Like what I'm saying will probably annoy and piss off some people. Um, forgive me for it. <laughs> no, I kind of like it. It makes me feel okay. Yeah. I'm actually still attached to the situation because I'm, I'm, I'm really wanting, I, I crave and I, and it's almost desperate for me. I'm like, I need this person to understand. So keep going. Right. Yeah. So, and think about that when we have a conversation with anyone, right. And they say, you say, you hurt me when you said that. And, and they go, but, but I didn't mean to hurt you. And you go, I know, but you still hurt me. And they go, but, but what I was trying to do is, and, and what are they doing? They're trying to make you understand your own feelings, right? Right. They're trying to have conditions around what you're feeling. But yeah. They're so, also trying to make it be, uh, they're trying not to take responsibility for the fact that they hurt you. Right. So instead, <laughs> what I, what I wanted to do was I wanted my father, I wanted him to justify what he did. Right. Right. Like I wanted, I was like, okay, so you need to apologize and justify and explain to the nth degree why this came about and also grovel. Like, holy shit, man. Like that's a lot of conditions for someone who's obviously not well, like to accommodate. Mm-hmm. Um, if he was doing like really great choices and being like, we ask people to be their highest selves. Like it's so funny, right? We're like, if you could just be your highest self to me right now, that'd be really convenient for me. Right. And I mean, would the guy be in prison? For murdering your mom if he was his fucking highest self like no yeah, he's no. not operating from the level in which you're requesting right if someone does something <laughs> awful are they even capable of operating <laughs> at that level totally right like and so that to me started to like make me laugh right like i was like oh my god yeah, I'm like chuckling because it's kind of like it is a little <laughs> bit absurd to come in with those expectations given the situation <laughs> right like we do, given we, no matter our situation we do it we totally do it like yeah. we're hurt so we're not at our highest level of operation right and we're coming at you from not a higher place asking you please go above and beyond anything that we're doing right now um so that's not accepting responsibility it's not also accepting reality right so to me it was literally i was not accepting that my mom had been killed. I was still defending it and wanting the answers and wanting to know the truth and why. And like, it's almost as though if I campaigned enough, I could change things. Oh, yeah. And when we love the, you know, 
when we feel passionate about the whatever the situation was like for me I obviously love my mother it felt like if I wasn't campaigning for her justice um that I was failing her yeah and so what my my resentment was a way that I could hang on to finding the right way right and finding justice and and when I realized I was like when I sat across from him like at that prison and I, and I heard him and his unreality and his just crazy thoughts and just strangeness I remember thinking I was like dude you're not you're not gonna get what you came for you man like he doesn't have it though like all my life I was waiting for him to give me whatever I thought I was missing and it was not his to give so whose was it to give how did you find it so for me, it was the minute I said to myself, like, I accept that what he did changed my life, okay? What he did was harrowing, unfor- like, forgettable, and just completely cellular changing. Like, you know, I just will never be the same. But I accept that it happened, and I accept the responsibility for now from what happens as an adult. I am no longer a child and I am the one now driving the car. You know, I'm the one who's in charge of this life, this adulthood. And I will no longer allow my anger, resentment, fear of doing life on my own to be anyone else's responsibility. (sighs) Yeah. And how old were you when this was occurring? Like 25, 26, yeah. It was yeah. Not, not long, you know, it's like 10, 11 years ago. Like, it's not really that long. Yeah, but that's really good. <laughs> like, given, like, the fact that, you know, you, this just gives hope to people. Mm-hmm. Like, it took 20 years. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It was 20 years of chaos and pain and all that. And, um, but I just think, you know, we're all so worth it. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, I feel like I just skimmed over that. We all are so worth it. Can you tell me more? (laughs) It's just, you know, that wholeness that, okay. (sighs) Having just had a child, this little miracle, this amazing creation came into the world. And honestly, I'd love to take credit, but I just showed up for the sexy 10. You know what I mean? And all of a sudden this like amazing baby came out and I was just like, I, I like we all, you know we're all like oh she's half me and it's like yeah but I didn't do much you know I just hung out and like hosted her but it's like a miracle and when you see this little being you think you're so perfect you're so perfect that I don't know like I just want so much for you so much wholesomeness so much happiness so much opportunity everything in the world can offer I want for you and I like to maybe live in a delusional world that every being, but I truly believe every one of us came into the world with that essence, that perfection, that wholesomeness, that glory, that grace, right? And I will never give up the belief that you are always like that. And you have been taught otherwise, and you have learned otherwise, and you have believed otherwise. And maybe, you know, like me, you had the shittiest childhood you could imagine, and everyone hurt you and betrayed you and left you and violated you and just gave you a million reasons to give up. But that's why I called my book Cracked Open, Never Broken, because I thought I was broken my whole life. And I came to realize that, fuck no, I was born glorious, whole, perfectly like heavenly and I will never let anyone take that feeling from me again. I love that. 
<laughs> and I, I'm more like, than that. Like that just, that's like an emotional mm-hmm. awakening just there listening to you. <laughs> it's, I think our duty to remind ourselves that and to find that again. Yeah. Yeah. That's just, that's, that's the thing about trauma recovery. It's not just about like, I want to say this like really eloquently because it means so much to me. So I'm going to try. Um, it trauma recovery for me is not just about integrating the thing that happened and then becoming yourself again, necessarily. To me, it's about finding a wholeness that you may have never met before, or that you may have lost because that's what abuse took from you or whatever it might be. But it's Mm -hmm. more than just being regulated. It's more than just feeling safe again in your body and in the world. Like that's all amazing. It gives you vitality back, but it's, to me, it's rediscovering or discovering for the first time this wholeness of being, like, like feeling all here and mm-hmm. being in the body and in yourself, but like with your soul and with your physical self and with your emotions and with mm-hmm. all of it, like being here and and being, you know, well in yes. this space. Like that to me is true trauma recovery. It's that wholeness. Yeah. Yes. The wholeness of accepting who you are now. You are never going to be the same. You're not ever going to want to be the same. And you know what? My hope for everyone is, is that when you are on your recovery journey, that you don't want to be the same, Yeah. that you embrace the scars, that you embrace this warrior. Like you went to battle and you came out of that battle and there are scars and sweat and tears and memories you'll never ever be able to hide from or run away from or unremember. And this wholeness that you are now is just as beautiful, as courageous, as worthy as you've always ever been because you were always you. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And it's like being and being allowed to be you. Yeah. It's in, yeah. And that, that acceptance piece, right? You're accepting okay, that happened to me, but I'm still allowed to be loved, whole, happy, safe, and good. Like, even though in spite of the trauma, in spite of the horrible memories, in spite of PTSD, I'm allowed to be, take up space. Yeah, I love that. Mm. Yeah. So tell us the last thing before we go. I could ask you a million questions, but. I know, I'm like, I can't believe it. The time just flies with you. Oh, um. That's the experience I want people to have. So that's good. <laughs> yeah. um, um, like the last thing I want is like a podcast interviewee to be like, that lasted forever. <laughs> um, the last thing I would want to just for the sake of my work in the world and for the sake of the podcast, um, I'm all about storytelling and I deeply believe that we are allowed to tell the stories that belong to us. Mm. And um, something that I've been um necessarily battling but considering I would say more so it's more so like a deep (laughs) consideration Mm -hmm. than a battle um writing my second book um Mm. I've been I've been thinking a lot about what do I write what do I not write um I'm more mature I wrote my first book super young so it's it's, I'm a bit of a in a different space than I was then and um I I don't want to hurt anybody with the story right Mm. I don't I don't want to ruin anybody's lives I don't want anybody to hate me I sure as heck don't want to get attacked mm-hmm. um, and yeah. I I consider this because um, it's important to me that I'm not writing from a subconscious place of wanting to hurt other people um, 
And I don't think I do that in general, but I want to be conscious of it as I'm writing the second book and it's from a more mature place. And the very same time, I'm really, really attached and I'm almost unwilling to let go of the belief that I can write whatever I want as long as it's true and as long as it's my story. So I'm not going to write like, you know, my dad's story, things that like are personal to him that have nothing to do with me. Like that's not Mm -hmm. my story to tell. Do I want to talk about how my whole life I've been trying to run away from the abuse um, that I've experienced in my household and I've had to grow up super fast? Yeah, Mm -hmm. I want to write about that because that's my story, right? Right. It's unfortunate that he's involved in it in some way for him, but at the same time, it's true, right? He might not be that person anymore. He may have healed a lot. He may have done all of the things that allow us to now have a relationship, which is amazing. However, the story is still part of who I am and is still worth being told in my belief. Right. So I want to, I want to kind of get a little bit of your thoughts around that because this is a question that I probably am asked all the time because I write so authentically and so openly. It's like, how do you know what you can share or not share? Like, how do you, how do you give yourself permission to tell your story? So I want to, because your story is actually involving other people and obviously the, the actions and the impacts of other people that like were not good, you know, like <laughs> it's yeah. not, it's not like a easy breezy, like super like light fun times uh, history here that we're mm-hmm. you know, writing about or that you wrote about and you cracked open and never broken. So what are your thoughts about that? I think oh, like I feel exactly the same. I was so concerned that I, I didn't want to um, hurt anyone. I didn't want to embarrass or humiliate anyone. I certainly to write about other people is very personal and uncomfortable um and I had to allow myself a lot of permission to even tell the stories and so one of the quotes that really helped me through I read this quote a million times writing my book um, from Anne Lameau and it's you own everything that happened to you tell your stories if people wanted you to write warmly about them they should have behaved better Man, that is my favorite quote of all time. Like, I'm not even kidding. That's my favorite quote of all time. Really? The other one is called The Invitation, but in those Yes. But but the first, that's my favorite quote because that's, it's like, I'm not making up shit here. Like, I'm just, this is just what happened. If you didn't want this to be, then you should have, like, thought about it better, you know? Totally. So the invitation is my favorite poem by Oriah Mountain Dreamer. I don't is that the one you're talking about? Yeah. 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 That's hilarious. I know we're kindred souls. Yeah. Um, but so I had to keep telling myself, you're allowed to have this, like this is what happened to you. You're allowed to tell it. And so for me, um, to be able to come to a beautiful place with that and in order to continue to write my memoir, I had to um for me, I had to tell myself, Iman only write about the forgiven. Okay, I like that. Because if I wrote about the people that I was still really angry with, I think I would have been blind to, and I would have written in a humiliation way or like a retaliation way or, you know what I mean, an angry way. And I didn't want to write that about anyone. Um, So I only wrote about the forgiven, which meant I had to do lots of forgiveness work through the, that's why it took me two and a half years to write the book. Now I'm like, Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what worked for me. And I just wanted to write the story. Yeah. How no. I remembered it. 
Yeah, no, I love that. I always say it's better to write from, I don't know where I heard this, but it's, it's kind of becoming mainstream. It's like write from a scar, not a wound. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think that's like really profound. Like I'm not, I love that. I'm not going to be writing stuff that I can't even process on my own because then it's like, I'm opening myself up to basically everybody saying something about it. And if I can't mm-hmm. handle that, then I have no business right now. Um, mm writing about it and something that I always say is like does it feel manageable in your body to get any kind of feedback based on what you write like that's what Mm -hmm. I always tell my clients like is it unmanageable just in the way that you're projecting the experience at this moment does it feel unmanageable to get Mm. any kind of feedback like any it could be amazing it could also be terrible like yes you handle any kind of feedback that would come your way based on something you were going to share online whether that's an Instagram post or that's a legit book right if it feels unmanageable it's probably because you have not processed it in a way that is solid yet right doesn't mean I love that right I love that because I was so afraid of the backlash of people who didn't agree or didn't enjoy or were in it. Maybe nobody wants to be in your book, by the way, everyone is just saying like, (laughs) nobody wants to be in your, (laughs) they don't want to be in your memoir. Um, So I asked for permission for my, like my siblings and uh, because I am so close with them and I wanted to make sure that they were okay with that and then I let them all read it before I published it and um change anything that they felt was untrue or not an accurate depiction or that they didn't want to share and so that was really important to me that the people I still wanted to have really strong relationships with felt as much as possible okay respected and heard um and there were some conversations where somebody said I don't like this story but it was integral to my story right so it was my um my experience and so in that in those cases and I had to say okay um well I'm going to share this because it is my experience of that and um how can we mitigate your you know reaction to that or what can I do to meet you halfway but I'm I can't remove this story just because it's really important to the, the whole overall and so there were a lot of awkward conversations and really uncomfortable and again that kind of goes back to what you said earlier about the inconvenience of healing Um, I've become okay with having really uncomfortable conversations with people I truly love. Yeah. 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 It's such a beautiful and responsible way to handle that. Um, but I love, I I liked actually, sorry, that I loved and liked, I tried to say it at the same time (laughs) that you, for the people you still wanted to have beautiful, strong relationships with, took the time to be responsible about checking in with them and checking mm-hmm. in with how they felt about it, if they felt it was true, if they felt they you didn't want to share that. And then if you felt like you wanted to still share that, it's not that like, oh, now because this person feels uncomfortable, I don't get to share my truth. It was like, listen, this is really important to me. Can't, how can we navigate this? Um, right. That like feels still solid to you and feels mm-hmm. as well so that I'm not silenced, but then you also don't feel like completely um, forgotten in the process. Right. Cause if it was a story I was sharing that I was in yeah. like a happening that happened that I was in, then I was also had a say to negotiate. Right. And I had the ultimate say, if it was a story I was sharing that was just about you, then I wanted to give them the power of a journey over that. Right. Like you can say, no, I, I don't have permission to share that about you and I will not violate your trust, um, and your confidence. Right. So that was really important to me. And 
you know, I, um, I let everyone read it and I was expecting this, like, I mean, I just did this really big thing as far as I was concerned with writing a memoir. It was a very hard, painful, growing, crazy experience that I was so ultimately very proud of. And what I had to learn, which was be like my biggest after fact takeaway that I didn't expect was that I had to allow everyone else their experience in processing the information that I gave them. Yeah. Like I wanted everyone to applaud me. Like I really did. I wanted my family to be like, man, wow, gosh, this must've been so hard for you. Like, you're just so good at this. This was awesome. But I did not get that reaction. Emily, I got, oh dear God, are you really going to do this? I don't like it. Yeah. And that's, um, I think that's a bit of like the, the hard part about being truth teller and being the storyteller mm-hmm. of a family system. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I wrote a poem a couple of years ago that was like, my family doesn't want me to be a writer before they have knowledge that I have stories to tell, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, it's unfortunate to, <laughs> it's unfortunate to like be in a family system with a writer because yep. <laughs> tell a story all the time like you know and then yeah and then other people who don't feel like that are kind of like okay could we like not do this this way though and you're kind of like but we have to like this is yeah liberation like it's just it's so it's so innate like I have to share this because I have to <laughs> give meaning to it because if I don't give meaning to it and it doesn't help other people what was the point you know right I love it yeah the yeah. writer's like journey is like I'm sure everyone around us is probably like, oh no, please don't write about this in your blog. Like, yeah. you're like, oh, sorry, babe. I yeah. won't say your name. Yeah, exactly. It's like, I'll change your name. <laughs> I feel like you need to still tell the stories. Um, yeah, so I think that, that uh, your, your thoughts here are super helpful for, for me and for everyone. I think that that's a, and then also when you're like so, pumped about something like my mom's never she still has never read my first book no way yeah she doesn't want to because she says it's too painful and I'm like I get it um but at the same time it's a good book you should read it uh, but it's an awesome like, book yeah but she yeah I know for her like she lets that's the way that she copes with it she doesn't read whereas like my dad will like literally like find things that I don't want him to find and he right like why did you write this this way type of thing so like, they have a different they have a different way of coping with it um whereas like my little brother has asked me like many times like I don't want to be written about and I try mm-hmm. the most like the most 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 that I can to totally respect that mm-hmm. um some people didn't even know like who just like follow me or get on my email list or whatever or get to know me they don't even know that I have a little brother because it's so not in my writing right um which is fine like he didn't I always look at it from the standpoint of like my parents like signed up to have me so like mm-hmm. they can they have to deal with this yeah and then my brother though like he didn't like sign up to have me as a writing sister you know so I try no. that I can to respect him and to respect that but I do agree with you like if I'm part of the story and this is new for me. Like if I'm part of the story and you happen to be there or something happened mm-hmm. that affected me, that's part of the storyline. Mm-hmm. I have ultimate say like I can, That's right. it's not like I'm, I'm going to be very careful to make sure that you're not feeling disrespected or violated by me telling the story because it's still your story, but I'm going to probably still write about it if it's yeah. part of my story, you know? Like if you, if you punched me in the face, 
Exactly. And then I wanted to write a story about being punched in the face by you. Um, you don't get to tell me I can't write about it because you, you punched me in the face. That's not right? so, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, so the way I mitigate those experiences with people that I truly care about and want to continue respecting and fostering relationships with is like, so it sounds like to me, you're still ashamed, embarrassed, or regretful of that. So let's talk about that healing together and we'll heal that. Maybe there's work you need to do by yourself or together or however. And I want to show up for you in that way. And that's what you like when you talk about boundaries and how I, um, you know, I'm very flattered when you talk about how I have boundaries and um, that you are respectful of that. Like, I just, that means so much to me because it's so hard work to like tell people all the time, like that hurts and please don't do that. Um, but that's where I would have boundaries where I'd be like, look, so my boundaries are that I want to really respect and show up for you in life. So the fact that I punched you in the face is making me super uncomfortable and <laughs> I need to do some healing about that. I haven't forgiven myself or maybe I feel like you didn't forgive me and like, let's work on that privately. And then um, at the same time, I see that you are a writer and I want to honor that in you and respect and, and support you. So I'm going to have to work on this shit by myself in the background. Yeah. 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 Love yeah. You yeah that's the best example exactly um so you took the words out of my mouth thank you <laughs> um so to wrap up um this is a i like to do like a few little questions at the end oh yeah this is for fun um but one thing that i'm super obsessed with is belonging i just you know developmental mm -hmm. trauma stuff makes you want to belong super hard yeah so <laughs> I, I always like to ask people at the very end um how do you find the most belonging in your world? Accepting myself. Mm, okay, I love that. Mm -hmm. Because I want to belong to me. Yeah, I love that. Oh, okay, that was good. <laughs> uh, okay, so now like a couple of fine questions. What's your favorite essential oil? <sighs> oh my gosh, it would have to be like a mix of like bergamot, uh, frankincense, and lavender. Those are my kind of so like super grounding, relaxing ones. Yes. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Um, do you know like any of your Myers-Briggs and stuff like that? Like, do you know any of your personality types? Yeah. So I'm an ENFJ. Uh, same. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Lovely. Um, cool. What's your, um, do you like, do you like being an ENFJ? I do. Yeah, yeah. Me too. I'm just like, I'm so caring. It's so beautiful. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think I'm amazing. <laughs> and very humble. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you know a little bit about your birth chart? What's your, what's your sun sign, your rising sign, your moon sign? Oh, gosh. I don't know all that. I know I'm a Leo. And so that's my sun sign. I don't know what time I was born. So it's hard for me to do the whole chart because obviously yeah. I don't have all of those documents. Yeah. Um, I think it was sometime in the morning. So I, uh, yeah, I could look more into it, but I, I don't really, I know everything I read about being a Leo is very, very accurate. Yeah. 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 Scarily so. Yeah. I, and you have the like Leo hair too. We'll put yeah, I like look like a cat. Like I literally look uh, like, like a lion. cat. Like a like a really <laughs> looking cat though. <laughs> like a cat. Um, amazing. So because you're a mom, um, what's been your favorite part of motherhood? Oh my gosh. Oh okay. Watching this little gorgeous creature um, become herself is so cool. Um, I think that I didn't realize how 
powerful I was, you know, like I just uh, like to bring her into the world and be this carrier of this magic. I, I, I really had a newfound respect for our bodies and just how we are. We get so obsessed with being like in this unreality that we live in, but we very rarely come back to our bodies. And so giving birth was a very uh, real experience of being in my body. <laughs> so that was really cool. But being my favorite part is seeing her discover the world. It's so cool. Yeah. Does she teach you things like through? Oh, probably. <laughs> yeah. 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 She's a really cool teacher. She, you know, I'm rediscovering joy and I didn't get much of a childhood. So I'm having a great time. Like she, I mean, I wrote her a book uh, in October and I illustrated it and I had to like get out of my head of like, you can't draw. You're not good at drawing. You're not really good at this and just draw. I drew all the pictures and I wrote it and like, it was just so fun. And um, the things that I create for her and the way that she's made me show up more and deeper in the ways that I always, I guess, had in me is just an like amazing revelation. That's lovely. Mm. Yeah. Like, so, yeah. So I'm writing her another book right now and like, it's just so cool. It just inspires me. (laughs) You're just like, I'm going to write you a book, my child. I love it. Um, What's a piece of wisdom that you always go back to when you're struggling? When I, when I'm struggling, I always go back to, um, my mother, you know, when I was little, she would say that you can be anything you want in this whole world. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you choose. Like the choice is not the most important thing. The most important thing is that you are in love and that you choose it with the like obsessive love that we feel about things we're passionate about. I love Mm. yeah so it's like I always think of that like because I for a long time forgot that and I always wanted to know what I was supposed to be doing you know and I think if anyone else suffers from anxiety you're always wondering like is this okay is this what I'm supposed to be doing am I okay right now yeah. um like you're illegal you know? <laughs> yeah I love that you're illegal yeah and so when I think like it doesn't matter be the writer be the dancer be the artist whatever it is you want be the lawyer doctor whatever it is you want but love it yeah oh that feels freeing hmm um, this is going to be, that was such a good answer. The follow-up question is not, is not as luxurious. Um, <laughs> um, do you have a favorite house plant or flower? Um, I'm all about that plant life. And I always like when people share their favorite house plants, cause I'm like, maybe I can get that one too. <laughs> mm. So I love Jasmine. Mm. That is my favorite flower. I have a Jasmine plant. Um, and I, I just love that. That's Ooh. lovely. Yeah. Okay. Keep going. <laughs> so good. It's uh, my favorite smell. Uh, so I love that um, perfume and scent and, and everything. So that flower is, uh, that plant is really beautiful. And also um, African violet mm-hmm. is one of my favorites because purple is my favorite, but also the African violet is very delicate. You have to like, you have to let it get right dry and then you have to like water it properly and then let it get dry again. And like, it just, when I, I remember getting one when I was 18 and being like, I feel like, <laughs> I feel like an African violet. <laughs> like sometimes I'm just full of, you know, tears and emotion. And sometimes it's like the hard drought. Yeah. 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 Okay. So <laughs> I, I, I'm going to get some Jasmine probably. Cause that one's nice. What is your favorite kind of weather? Oh my gosh, I love that question. Oh, you know, 
obviously we all love sunshine and like we can appreciate that right but i love rain mm. i love wilderness and in the rain mm. yeah like you're like a mountain girl in some way like you're a forest uh, person are you yeah i am a forest mountain person yeah so i think obviously growing up in you know the rockies has something to do with that mm-hmm. uh, and in my book you know, it talks about living in these wilderness places and these acreages and having these forests to roam about and feel alone with myself and part of the world. And I, that's always stuck with me. I just, and the drizzle of the rain and no one ever likes the rain. And I think the rain reminded me always of grief, um, which is not, you know, it's kind of obvious, right? It's sad and gloomy and stuff, but I always found it beautiful because nobody ever likes the rain, but they sure love the things the rain brings. Mm, wow talk about giving meaning to even a question like this look at you who you are (laughs) I can't help myself but it's like the truth right people are always like oh it's raining and they complain and I think no wonder it must be difficult for some people to find the meaning and joy in their life because you can't even appreciate that the different types of mother nature that you know have to occur in order for us to exist and I don't know yeah, yeah, I... But it's not convenient. It's not convenient, yeah. I feel, <laughs> I really feel like winter is not convenient, but um, I also feel like, of course, like right now I'm in, you know, living in a, like, southern kind of... Totally, um, yeah. However, like, over the past couple of years, I've, like, made peace with, like, the different seasons and stuff. I was like, you know, there's all a purpose. It's all okay. You know, because I was mm-hmm. like... That, that I that winter existed so it was a big thing for me to as as silly as it sounds it was a big thing no it's not silly like when I lived in uh I moved to British Columbia and it rained I couldn't believe it could rain so much like I just was like holy moly like it's literally not stopped raining for it's raining 24 hours a day for four days in a row like and I remember feeling insane and I can understand how people get like the seasonal disorder of um you know and but after a while, when I became like surrendered to the weather, mm-hmm. I realized that like I wasn't accepting the world. And it's really yeah. hard to live in the world if you're not yeah. accepting it. Yeah, that's exactly what I felt. I felt like because I can't accept all of the seasons is because I can't accept all of the things that mm-hmm. make up life. Like it was a big spiritual like thing for me. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I love that. I love it. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with us before we hop off? Because I did stretch you to nearly two hours. So thank you. Ah, I didn't even notice. Honestly, this was amazing. Holy crap. It's yeah, that's crazy. That blows my mind. Honest. I'm so grateful. Um, you know, for anyone listening, I, I mean, thanks for sticking around for two hours. That's so incredible. This is such an important conversation and such a, an incredible podcast. And I love the way you show up, Emily. I am so honored and grateful to have met you five years ago and to know you and to just like have these pieces of our journey that keep connecting and it just means so much when I think of you it's in such high reverence and just gratitude uh you inspire me man like it's just so good same 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 thank you so much for being on the podcast with us if you thank you and you love the episode Iman where can we find you online so I'm in all the places. So imangatti.com. So I-M-A-N-G-A-T-T-I. And the same on Facebook and Instagram is where you can find me daily. Woo. 
Okay. And um, if you listen to podcasts in general and you loved it, make sure to leave a review or rate it if you want to even tell me how you felt about it. I love that even more. But the more you share the podcast, the better it gets in terms of popularity. And obviously that means that more people will listen to it and benefit from it. So do that up and um, I will see you next week. Thank you so much for tuning in.